read something this week in my Bible study with my kids, and it's been sticking with me. And let's start with, with um, Mark, because that's what I started with. Get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up, to the, up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he, he saw them, he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when, he, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hard. Amen. Thank you. Okay, so the story immediately preceding this is obviously the story of the loaves and the fishes, right? And what happened was Jesus was performing lots of miracles and doing lots of teaching in the town, and they were tired. And so he proposed a vacation, a small vacation. He said to his disciples, come away with me and let's go to a quiet place. Can everybody say quiet place? Quiet place? So they went, and it says that word spread ahead of them as they're traveling in the boat. The word is going faster than the boat is being carried by the wind. And by the time he gets to the quiet place, there are 5,000 men plus their families waiting. It's like you can just picture that vacation of a vacation coming down off the jet bridge, and it's like, oh, honey, this is going to be great. <sighs> 20,000 people waiting right there at the gangplank. We're ready for you. Amen. And he doesn't, he doesn't get upset. He immediately starts ministering to them. And what happens is they become hungry, and his disciples say, you know, we need to get these people out of here. How would you feel if they join you on your vacation? Huh? We need to get these people home <laughs> because they're so hungry. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you follow me? And there's a little, they say that it would take a month's wages to feed them. Because Jesus says to them, you feed them. And they immediately assume that God is going to fulfill people's needs through the limited manna of man's efforts. So he says, you feed them. They said, we don't have enough money. I hear that all the time. I even say it all the time. It's the truth. But they assume that God is limited to conventional human efforts when it comes to meeting people's needs. So, yeah, it would take, it's a month's wages. How could we ever do that? And so he asks them that all-important question. And I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm just recapping it for you. What does he ask them? They told him what they didn't have. <laughs> and he asked them what they did have. God always wants you to answer an impossibility with what you do have instead of vomiting out what you don't have. What do you have? And he said, well, we've got five loaves and two fishes. Amen. And he said, give it to me. And we know the, the story of what happens when, when our inadequacy lands in God's hands willingly, right? So he takes it and they pick up 12 baskets of leftovers of the scraps that were left behind. This is a phenomenon, right? Now, this is obviously to meet the needs of the people. 
But there is a much bigger concern. This is mentioned in three Gospels, and the same story that happened with the 4,000 is mentioned in the fourth Gospel. This is something the Bible wants us to get. This was some kind of seminal, pivotal point in their discipleship process. It's this story that follows the, the loaves and the fishes and then the boat ride. Okay? And so it says, immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida, which is where they were coming from, while he sent the people home. So it's like, I'm going to dismiss the crowd. You guys get a head start in the boat. You could almost infer a favor to them that we wanted to go on a vacation. I'm sorry it didn't work out. Y'all get back in the boat, and I'll take care of getting rid of this crowd of 20,000 people. After telling everyone goodbye, Jesus went up into the hills by himself to pray. Late that night, the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on the land. Now, this has been told a lot of times, and I don't take issue with any telling of this, but I'm going to try to tell you what I see in this, because I think I saw something that I hadn't seen before. Okay, so the typical narrative is Jesus sent them out into the boat. They got in a fix, and he was going to pass them by, but they apprehended him. And there is a meaningful truth in that narrative. We see that with, with uh, the blind Bartimaeus at the gates of Jericho. We see that with the leper. Uh, we see that with the ten lepers. We see that all over the Bible. So that truth is not undermined by the twist that I'm going to give you. But I don't think that's what happened here. I believe Jesus wants faith to follow faith. I believe he wants us to go from faith to faith and glory to glory, from obedience to obedience. I believe he let them receive the miracle of the loaves and fishes to propel them and set them in momentous movement toward a miracle that was supposed to happen on the sea. And I don't believe it was his perfect will for him to be the big solution to that miracle on the sea. I think his intention was that the faith inspired by the loaves encounter would manifest and expand in the storm encounter. Do you follow me there? So it says, after telling everyone goodbye, so on and so forth, he saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and waves. Who has a new American standard here? Do you, do you, does anybody want to look at that word he saw, verse 48? What is the alternate reading there, the, the literal, when it says against the wind and waves? You see a little literal mark? Yes. Thanks. Thank you. Say, say, say it again. So it means the literal is he saw them harassed, harassed and rowing against the waves. This is something else, right? I hope you're starting to see yourself here. Okay. He saw that they were in serious trouble, harassed and rowing against the wind and waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them 
walking on the water. He intended to go past them, but when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. They were all terrified when they saw him. Amen. God knew what was coming. He knew, just read those verses there in the New American Standard for me. Read, read verse uh, 46 through 49, what we just read there. Just read it again for me. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars or harassed and rowing, for the wind was against them at about the fourth hour watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. So he saw the problem. He anticipated the problem. He was aware when they were in the midst of it. But he was praying. He asked, what was he praying for? The one time he tells us what he prayed for, what does he say? I have prayed for thee that thy faith would not fail. Isn't that what he tells him? And when he returns from praying one time in Luke 17, what do they ask him? Teach us to pray and increase our faith. So in, there's a possibility that Jesus sees a dullness, and that's what the, the word means there, when it says they were unable to discern it because of their dullness of hearts, it means callous, blindness, dullness. He was seeing a problem. And he says, you guys go in that boat. He sees the storm coming and he sends them right into it, knowing what they're going to be facing. And he goes up to pray. And then he comes out to watch, to be part of their victory. And what he wants to see is that something changed in these babies. Something happened when they put their pitiful offering in the hands of God and it turned into food for 20,000. Something changed that would empower them to put their weak faith in the hands of God, to operate in grace. Remember when he was in the boat with them the other time, what does he say when they wake him up? Is he pleased that they wake him up? He is angry. And he says, oh, you of little faith, how long must I put up with you? He is not enamored by being woken up. In fact, he's frustrated with them. And I believe he saw something. He saw a possibility in the loaves miracle. And he wanted to see that manifest through their faith in the storm miracle. Right? But it's not what happens. Amen. Instead... He comes out there and he encounters panic. He encounters fear. They're undone. And they were all terrified when they saw him. And Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. Then he climbed into the boat and the wind stopped. They were totally amazed. For they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. After they had crossed the lake, they landed at Gennesaret. They brought the boat to shore and climbed out. Now let's, let's look at the Matthew version. And Matthew is, is really identical with one 
notable difference. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately after, so it tells about the 5,000. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. Sounds familiar, right? After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone praying. I believe what he's praying for is, God, could you please get these disciples out of the stupor of their carnal perspectives and bring them into the power of faith that, I, that they see me working in? Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. One of your Bibles will say, for the wind was contrary. Do you ever feel like you set out on a project or a purpose or a cause or an endeavor of any kind, and it just feels like the wind is against you, and no matter how you try to, to maneuver that rudder and tilt that sail, the waves are just oppositional? And you say, everything is going against me. God sent you into that storm. Not to hurt you. Not to make fun of you. And not to see you drown. But to see you get to a place where man's efforts reach their end. And God's power begins to be made perfect through your weakness. God believes that a faith, a bottled up potential faith inside of you can be uncorked because of the way you've seen him operate in the giving of the loaves and fishes. And he is believing that you will not be, O oh, ye of little faith, but O oh, ye of growing faith. <laughs> the disciples were in trouble far away from the land for a strong wind had arisen and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! Mark tells us they thought it was a ghost. Matthew explains they even screamed, It's a ghost! Does this reveal the state of mind of these poor chaps? They were in some state, I believe. They were like psyched out convinced they were about to die and if you're about to die and you think it's going to happen any minute and all of a sudden you see a ghost coming to you to come take you home <laughs> you're going to be saying no thank you with all your heart i'm telling you that right now amen i mean if you really think you're about to die you do not want to see a ghost they cried out it's a ghost but jesus spoke to them at once and said don't be afraid so in all of these accounts he rebukes them he says stop it stop it stop your panicking you're at just the moment where God can start to do something through you that's never happened before you see we all hate problems we hate crises there's not a one of us that looks forward to a crisis but God stands on the solid ground of the shore and commands you to get into a boat and head straight into a crisis sometimes. Not to see you hurt. Not to see you buffeted. But to see you uncork a bottled up power that you didn't know you had. Without crisis, 
There is no transformation. There is no new power. There is no unearthing, unboxing, unbottling of the potential power that is simmering beneath the surface in your heart. I've told you before, it's silly to say, I wish there had been no Goliath. Aren't you glad there was a Goliath? Aren't you glad the people of God shook and trembled? And aren't you glad somebody came down? Because though he thought he was a shepherd boy, he came down as a youngster, he came down as a shepherd, but when he got within proximity of the problem, a warrior started to call out and ask questions. And a prophet started to speak. And a king was born that day. Don't say, oh God, I'm so, I'm so scared of the lion's den. If there was no lion's den, we'd have no faith of Daniel. We wouldn't even know what it means to trust God that he could seal the lion's mouths. Don't complain and say, oh God, I hope there's no Red Sea. Say, God, I hope if there is a Red Sea, I'm not one of the whiners, but I'm one who can say, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Problems separate the men from the boys. Crises separate the followers from the leaders, the fearful from the faithful, the anointing from the opinionated. Without those crises, the flesh can maintain its illusion of control. But when God puts you in a place where the flesh is utterly out of control, something is going to be revealed. Whether you're a bluffer, a coward, or whether you're a son, at least a son in the making. But this, this, this version gives us a little twist. It says, but Jesus spoke to them at once, said, do not be afraid. Take courage. I am here. Same, same as the other up to this point. But it adds in a little bit of the story. Matthew's gospel, which is said to be the oldest in the Bible, in the New Testament, it adds in a little slice of the story that the other gospels didn't record. Then... Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to do something that ghosts could never empower me to do. My rendering, right? Lord, if it's really you, if, if you're here in the midst, we're in the valley of the shadow of death, and if you're here with us, Tell me to do something that only you could equip me and empower me to do. Command me to come to you walking on the water. And so Jesus said, yes, come. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. Peter was going to rescue a miracle from their faithlessness. I think this is why Jesus liked Peter. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith. Oof. He didn't say you're the first man 
on earth besides God who's ever walked on water. That's a great start. He said, you have so little faith. What would he say to us? Why did you doubt me? And then it picks up where the other gospels splice in and it says, then they climbed back into the boat and the wind stopped. He didn't stop the wind for the water walk. <laughs> Did you catch that? It's like he's got the power to make him walk on water as if it were hard surface, but he purposely didn't stop the wind for the water walk. He only stopped the wind and waves when he got into the boat and told them they were babies. In short, God doesn't do things our way. When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. He knew that. <laughs> and he thought they should have known that. He didn't want another confirmation of what they already knew. He wanted them to start moving in the power of the sons of God. And what does this tell me? This tells me that God's expectations concerning my faith are far higher than I think they should be. Can anybody here say that if you walked even three paces on water, you wouldn't expect whoever called you to be just rejoicing and awestruck and, whoa, teach me how to have that kind of faith. I mean, is that our response? And is that Jesus' response? So what does that tell you about the difference between what we think is enough faith and what God thinks is enough faith? That the things that we think are great exploits, history-setting miracles, he thinks are baby steps behind the times. Get on with it already. We've got a kingdom to build. Stop being so self-centered. Why did you doubt me? And he didn't stop the wind and waves for Peter's water walk. He didn't say, okay, let's be calm. Now try. He didn't give him a second chance. There are things that happen in our lives. Words spoken. Feelings sensed. Changes that occur. Miracles that take place. And God does not send those merely to bless us. In fact, in John, he rebuked them for the way they followed him all the more because of the loaves and fishes. He did not want the loaves and fishes to produce more clamor, more excitement, more of a sense of blessing or entitlement. He wanted the loaves and fishes to produce power in the lives of the disciples. He wanted faith to rise in their hearts and for them to start operating in that faith. But their notion of God was not consistent with who God really was. They didn't think God would purposefully send them into the storm and stay on the bank praying for them. They didn't think it was God's will for them to walk on the water amidst all the waves and wind. It tells us that Peter sank when he saw the waves and wind, not when he saw the water. So you could say that if Jesus had just calmed the waves and wind... Peter would have walked all the way. And that's what we say to God all the time. 
all the time when we disobey him, when we lose faith halfway between our problem and our victory. We say, Lord, if you had just calmed the waves and wind, it wasn't the water that was freaking me out. Amen. But he, he knows exactly how much faith we need to have. He knows exactly the step that's big enough and not too big and not too small. And when we start setting our own pace, he's no longer God. We are. But if he says, come, it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what it feels like. He knows we can find the grace and victory to press through because of our trust in him, despite what we're seeing. Somebody says, if only the meeting had calmed down at such and such a time, I would have testified. You mean you stopped because of the waves and wind. If only God had produced this and that. God's not there to produce a circumstance where your flesh is comfortable with faith. He is tailor-making circumstances where no flesh can glory in His presence. So you ought to expect it to be nothing but death to the flesh, even while it is life and liberty for the new man of the Spirit. I hate a trial as much as any one of us. I truly do. I hate them. Just like you do. Amen. But there's two ways to respond to a trial. Oh, God, I hate this. Couldn't life be simpler? Couldn't my first water walk be at least without waves and wind? Or, Lord Jesus, if it be you, command me. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus, and I'm going to forget those things that lie behind and those things that lie around and those things that lie on every side. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to sever the weight of doubt that so easily besets and the sins that entangle, and I'm going to walk. Amen. I'm not even going to complain about the wind and waves. That isn't the issue here. And as soon as you reconcile your heart, you say, God, I'm not looking for you to swoop in and jump in my boat. I'm looking for me to be faithful, knowing that you're going to provide the power if I'll have the faith. I believe he would have been so much happier if the disciples had landed at Gennesaret and the Lord was already standing there. And he said, guys, how'd you make it over? And Thomas said, Lord, I was utterly freaking out. And something came on Peter. And he stood up in the midst of the boat. And he said, the God who multiplied the five loaves and two fishes can surely calm these waves. And immediately, Lord, it became calm. And Jesus would have said, I was praying. I was praying for that miracle to meet you. Thank you, Jesus. I'm so proud of you guys. Oh, ye of growing faith, let's move on from strength to strength. Amen. Hallelujah. I believe that this would have been the second time when it says in the New Testament, and Jesus rejoiced greatly. Jesus does not rejoice when you come with your whining, but boy, he rejoices when you come with your faith. No matter how small, five loaves and two fishes, he rejoices. Remember when he sent the 72 out and he said, I am giving you authority over every unclean spirit. Preach the gospel. Go into all these places. Don't take any props. Don't take 
the things, the crutches that the flesh relies upon because this is going to be a little test run of what God builds. Don't take your plans. Don't take your dependencies. Just go and lean on me. And when they came back, they said we encountered problems, but we solved them. We encountered demons, but we cast them out. We encountered sick and we healed them. And the poor heard the gospel. And what did Jesus do? He saw something. What did he see? Let's ask that first. It's what I referred to last week. This is the first precedent of coordinated operation in the gifts of the Spirit. And he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. When you will move in faith together, in obedience and without any doubting, Satan's kingdom comes down with such force and speed, it looks like grease lightning. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then it says he rejoiced greatly. It's the same word he used when he says, it shall become in you, the Holy Spirit shall become in you a fountain of living water springing up unto eternal life. That's what it means. That's the same word. It says, joy sprang forth from Jesus. He rejoiced greatly. He said, oh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. They're going to do it. And when they, when they brought a man to him, when a man brought his son to him, rather, and said, I... My son is demon-possessed, and I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cast it out. What did he say? Oh, that happens. Oh, it happens. Just be thankful for all the other things they've done. Is that what he said? What did he say? He rebuked them sharply again. And I dare to say, if you brought some of your problems to Jesus about raising your children, amen, about your place in the kingdom, about your job, he would not start rubbing your back. That's the beatific Jesus painted by Michelangelo and the rest. But the real Jesus would say, why did you doubt? What is wrong with you? He who doubts is like a wave of the sea, tossed here and there and carried by every wind of doctrine and the cunning craftiness of what man does. We need to get to a place where we know, God, if you sent me out on this boat, then you sent me with the grace to get through this storm. No matter what I see in the way of waves or what I see that I think might be ghosts and what I feel that might be strong winds and the the heaving and tossing of this little boat. You sent me here, and I am not going to betray the faith that I ought to have in that word that sent me. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. I'm going to stick with the course, Lord, in Jesus' name. We're going to make it to the other side and tell a story about how faith survived. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, God. Praise you, Jesus. Amen. I love the victories. I love it when people come to God. I love it when, when people when get healed, when problems get solved. I love the blessings. But I'll tell you what's changed me is the crises. What's revealed new gifts in me is the crises. 
what's uncovered grace in my life that I didn't know I had, and in fact I didn't have except in a dormant potential sense. What's uncovered that grace was impossibilities where sin abounded. We need to stop complaining about the crucibles of transformation and instead let God have His way and believe in the process like Brother Daniel said. These people got a shortcut through the process, don't you know? When he got in the boat, they got a shortcut. And they're just postponing their time of transformation to another trial. Does that sound exciting to you? Because it doesn't to me. Oh, Lord, get me out of this. And he says, okay, I will. I will. But you're going to go through it again and again and again and again until you get the kind of faith and maturity to let God be true. And even your own senses a liar. Surely this was, isn't your will, God. Well, no. No. It wasn't God's will for anybody to be demon-possessed, was it? Huh? But was it God's will for his disciples to be encountered, to encounter the impossibility of demon possession? You betcha. So you can say, I wish this brother wasn't demon-possessed. Or you can say, God, help me not to feel my brother. And help me not to feel your name. In Jesus' name, help me to dig deeper. Help me to uncork bottled-up grace in this time. Amen. Oh, Lord, you know I don't have what it takes, but I'm going to get on my knees in the bottom of this rocking boat and remember what you just did in the last meeting, in the last miracle with the loaves and the fishes. I do not know how to pray as I ought, but I'm going to let the Holy Spirit start to pray through me with groanings too deep for words. And I'm going to say, God, I might die. I might lose my image. I might fall out of this boat, but one thing I'm not going to do is start whining and complaining I serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. He's worthy of my faithful obedience. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. God, make us warriors of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Faith is not a feeling that somebody else gives you. It's not goosebumps when somebody's playing a song. It's a fight. It's a struggle. And sometimes it's a struggle against silence, against boredom, against confusion, and the belief that you're isolated, against the fear that you're alone in the middle of the lake. And your Lord and your best friend sent you here, and he's by himself on the safety of the shore. But fight that fight. Don't surrender. Take up the shield of faith. <laughs> with which you will be able to quench all the lies of the devil and protect your heart and protect your thinking, your head and your heart, you'll be okay. Oh, God, increase our faith. Amen, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus, God. Amen. We can resent the waves. We can resent the crisis. We can resent the problem. We can resent our brother who's got a condition that we need to help with. It can produce character or it can produce bitterness. A root of bitterness or character. We can resent it or we can be transformed. I've shared with you time and again what, what, what happened to me. Where's Zane and Hannah? You know, when, when we were in the Ronald McDonald house with them and, and it dawned on me eight days before their, their baby Caden passed away, it dawned on me with power 
powerful impact that their baby was going to die. And I went and talked to Brother Dan, and I went outside in that August heat by the air conditioning vent, and I just doubled over and wept. And I wept, and I wept, and I, I felt undone. And what was killing me was not just the pain of what, of losing this, this, this child, this nephew. That wasn't really what was grieving me. We had gone through this, Rebecca and I, with our first. And I knew what it had done. And I knew how awful it was. And I, in the smallness of my perspective, I was sure that they wouldn't make it that this would crush him. And I said to the Lord in, in a half prayer, half wine, I said, God, they, you can't let this happen because they won't make it. They can't go through this. And immediately in that still, small voice, I heard him say, yes, they are not the people who could survive something like this but I will make them into the people who will survive something like this. God doesn't leave us with the deficits that we were downloaded with at birth. He sends us into the storm and prays for us at the shore. Amen. And I saw them go through that and I saw that change come. And there are so many of us if we, if we look into the future and we were to see what, ha what God has in store for us, we would say, I could never. Which one of you was telling me that about baptism? Brother Simeon Cunningham was telling me the other night. He said, if I knew the battles I was going to face at baptism, I wouldn't have done it. But I'm so glad I did it. We don't know what lies ahead. But I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able and, and it's true. You're not the person who can make it through the next trial. But in the midst of the trial, in the tossing of the waves, in the fear, in the panic, amen, there will be a grace that you can tap into. And that grace will make you a different man than the one who left the shore. You'll become the people who can survive such things. And not only survive, but see new power released through them. Let us determine in our hearts never to go through another storm without being mindful of this perspective of how God is trying to release something in us through this storm. Amen? It's a compliment to our maturity when he sends us into a wretchedly complicated problem. He thinks we've learned something. He doesn't think we have missed, quote unquote, the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Have you missed the significance of the miracles that God has done in your life? Have you missed it? Because if you haven't, you're going to have just what you need to face the next storm and the next and the next and the next. Oh, I hope somebody feels my heart tonight in the heart of God. Amen. Let's worship God and let's commit ourselves to this kind of faith. Amen. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you.